Hello and welcome to the NeuroFarm podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colby Burns, Doctor of Pharmacy. I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Christopher Tony, Doctor of Pharmacy. There's over four million podcasts in the United States, so a lot of options to choose from. But we're sure glad you're choosing to listen to this one, and hopefully provide some educational and informational value on this edition. Today, we're going to be discussing psilocybin for the treatment of pain disorders and for neurological injuries. We focused on psilocybin for mental health-related conditions in episode five of the podcast two weeks ago with a recap of clinical trials using psilocybin for the treatment of major depression disorder, end-of-life anxiety or palliative care, and for substance use disorder for those with long-term alcohol and tobacco use. I do want to recap in case this wasn't emphasized enough last time that patients with a history of psychosis or bipolar one disorder or schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorders are not good candidates for psilocybin therapy. The visual and cognitive stimuli experienced by those who are using psilocybin can increase the risk of causing a psychotic episode for those prone to psychosis. And generally patients in this population are excluded in psilocybin clinical trials. There is a risk for using psilocybin also in teenagers in that it could potentiate a psychotic episode in those without a prior history, but known genetic risk factors for schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. This is a warning also applied to cannabis products. Uh, the age of onset and diagnosis for schizophrenia and bipolar one tends to be in the late adolescent years from the late teens to early twenties, but changes in the brain could perhaps accelerate with persistent use of psychedelics or cannabinoids um, at a younger age. Although there really isn't good research or data on this, it's still best to be avoided in the pediatric population. With regards to microdosing in adolescents, because this is something that appears to be an area of interest for both teens and their parents, uh, we will plan to discuss this in the future segment when we discuss uh, microdosing of psilocybin by itself. But just want to issue that sort of warning or disclaimer for starting the podcast. So I want to lead our discussion by mentioning uh, adventure athlete, Jim Harris. This comes from an article that appeared in outside magazine in November, 2022. Jim uh, is again, an adventure enthusiast guest goes around the world. He suffered a severe spinal cord injury and was paralyzed from the chest down in a tragic snow kiting accident in Patagonia in 2014. After seven months of intense physical therapy and rehab, he was able to get around using a walker, but he still remained partially paralyzed in his right hamstring muscle. Jim expressed an article in Outside Magazine that he could not get his right hamstring to wake up, and so he was only able to like move around somewhat erratically using a walker. Sometime after his accident, he attended a concert in Denver and tried a dose of psilocybin from a friend. He noticed his right hamstring became responsive to touch when he put his hand on it. He was actually able to partially lift his right foot up towards his butt for the first time. The next day, his hamstring was still firing. His physical therapist was described as shocked by this development. Um, Jim has continued to use ayahuasca, another tryptamine derived from nature, which we'll talk about later about two to four times a year to support physical and emotional healing and to enhance his mind-body connection 
so he could focus on his muscles and make micro adjustments to continue his physical therapy. Today, he is able to walk with just a cane, and he has resumed skiing and biking to some extent, which doctors once thought would be impossible. Uh, the story of Jim Harris serves as a perfect introduction to jump into the topic of using psilocybin and psychedelics for treating central nervous system injuries, including chronic pain and traumatic brain injury, or TBI. The very first study to evaluate the potential of psychedelics to treat central nervous system injuries was an experiment conducted in the early 2000s when Victor Arvanian and his team at Stony Brook University gave paralyzed rats a combination of LSD and neurotrophin-3, a protein that helps new neurons grow from stem cells. The rats given this combination recovered much faster than those in the control group, uh, but for unclear reasons, the experiments were never continued. That's an interesting story there, Colby. Um, tell us, uh, are there any studies evaluating psilocybin specifically uh, for traumatic brain injury? Yes, a good question. Um, studies evaluating psilocybin for traumatic brain injury, or TBI, appear to be in the preclinical stage or ongoing. In 2020, Tiselli Life Sciences, a company focused on R&D for psilocybin-based therapies, provided funding to Dr. Michael Hoffer's lab at the University of Miami to research psilocybin for PTSD and mild TBI. Dr. Hoffer's lab is also interested in cannabis research, and their goal is to combine psilocybin and CBD into an FDA-approved drug and look for using therapies uh, for other conditions like obsessive-compulsive disorder, OCD. Tiselli ended up being acquired by Champignon, a Canadian-based company which formulates medicinal mushrooms into novel delivery platforms for the pharmaceutical and nutraceutical injuries. The results for this study were anticipated in late 2021, but they have not yet been published. There's another study uh, being conducted by Loeb Sciences, another Canadian-based biotech company focused on research on drugs targeting the serotonin 2A receptor like psilocybin. They also entered in a contract in 2021 with Dr. Hoffer's lab for research of psilocybin combined with N-acetylcysteine for mild traumatic brain injury with PTSD. N-acetylcysteine by itself is a powerful antioxidant with demonstrated efficacy in mouse models in treating preclinical TBI if administered early after primary injury. It's also showed benefit in reducing the incidence of hearing loss in a phase one trial among military service members in Sweden exposed to acoustic accidents or loud weapons discharges, which creates vibrational effects that cause TBIs or concussions. Results of the N-acetylcysteine and psilocybin trial were expected in 2021, but Loeb apparently has only released preclinical data so far as it has faced supply issues around psilocybin. Third study um, I saw under evaluation was Wasana Health, investigating psilocybin in combination with CBD to treat mild traumatic brain injury and TBI-associated symptoms. In mouse models with mild TBI, the company's SANA-013 drug candidate containing psilocybin had demonstrated effectiveness. Um, it was only administered as it was administered as a relatively high loading dose, followed by self-administered maintenance dosing. Although we have no clinical data to support the use of psychedelics and TBI, there are several proposed mechanisms to explain how they may work 
in the treatment of TBI. Pharmacology professor Charles Nichols at LSU has studied mechanisms of anti-inflammation induced by psilocybin and other tryptamines like DMT in cellular and animal models. Serotonin receptor agonists like the tryptamines bind the 1A, 2A, 2B, and 2C serotonin receptors, which has the effect of lowering molecule called TNF-alpha, which is a potent anti-inflammatory molecule, as well as lowering IL-1B and IL-6. It also leads to increased release of transcription growth factor beta and IL-10, which are two anti-inflammatory compounds. Um, stimulation of serotonin receptors does lead to increased production of some pro-inflammatory molecules, but on the whole, overall, it generally promotes anti-inflammation above pro-inflammation. We haven't talked much yet about ayahuasca. Um, I know this is pretty perhaps review for some, but I just want to mention for those who have heard of ayahuasca but don't know exactly what it is, it's not a mushroom, first of all. It's actually a brew made from the bark of the Venisteriopsis capii vine and the leaves of Psychotria viridis. These are popular among Amazonian tribes. Uh, they make this brew. It has you know multiple chemicals in it, but DMT is the primary psychoactive ingredient or dimethyltryptamine. DMT is structurally very similar to psilocin, which is of course the active form of psilocybin, and also very similar to serotonin itself. Uh, I can post a picture below so you can see the structures so there's only minor modifications really between these three substances one difference is dmt doesn't contain an additional hydroxyl or phosphoryl group as psilocin does um, on one of the carbon rings all these though are tryptamine molecules serotonin is known as 5-hydroxytryptamine uh, by its full chemical name but DMT may actually have additional benefits for patients with TBI or stroke or neurogenitive disorders because it's been shown in mouse models to bind to the sigma-1 receptor. The sigma-1 receptor is known to play an important role in the endoplasm reticulum stress response by increasing antioxidant production like superoxide dismutase or SOD. Uh, these antioxidants help to eliminate free radicals that can cause damage to genes and on the cellular level. Sigma-1 receptors are also present in brain cells like astrocytes and microglia, and they have been shown to have important roles in the formation and myelination of neurons and creation of new synapses and neuron regeneration. There aren't many clinical trials of Sigma-1 receptors, uh, but one study showed statistically significant functional recovery in moderately to severely affected patients post-stroke. Another study in rats given a sigma-1 receptor agonist had enhanced recovery of sensory motor function post-stroke, even when started two days after occlusion of the middle cerebral artery of their brain. This could, in theory, expand the narrow treatment window of ischemic stroke if the same result occurred in humans, but more research needs to be done there before we can say that. In vitro or cellular models also show protective effects of DMT in preventing reperfusion injuries and 5-MeO-DMT, or known as the toad, to some who might know that better by that name, was shown in human cell models to favorably alter the proteome or set of all proteins within the brain to favor dendritic cell formation and inhibit factors involved in neurodegeneration and cell death. 
So both psilocybin and DMT can promote neurogenesis and neuroplasticity, which is the ability of the brain to form and reorganize synaptic connections. The current methods for trying to facilitate plasticity mainly focus on intensive physical therapy and direct current magnetic stimulation, but there's long been a search for a pharmacologic agent that could promote neuroplasticity in itself. Um, the improvement in psychiatric disorders seen by patients taking psychedelics, you know, which we kind of talked about last time, has been believed to be driven by neuroplastic adaptation within the brain, and these results have been seen in both human and animal models. In mouse models, the administration of psilocybin at low doses was shown to facilitate plasticity and neurogeneration, but at high doses, it inhibited those factors. Unless mice were given a high dose only once a week rather than daily, then they did receive a similar benefit than if it was given as low doses daily. So that kind of provides a convenience factor, maybe being able to only give it as one high dose a week rather than requiring daily dosing. We do know repeated dosing tends to downregulate serotonin receptors. So that's where some of the concern about tolerance develops to psilocybin. Your body will actually produce uh, fewer receptors for it to bind to over time. Um, but again, it isn't just the serotonin effects that promote brain healing with psychedelics. Um, it's also that sigma-1 receptor binding and increases in something called brain-derived neurotropic factor, or BDNF which has been shown to be increased for up to 48 hours after a person consumes ayahuasca. I just want to share some stats too on TBI here to explain why it's so important. It's considered a silent epidemic as it impacts over 70 million individuals around the world and 5.3 million Americans alone. There's over 230,000 hospitalizations and 3 million emergency room visits in the U.S. alone for mild traumatic brain injury. Um, the maltraumatic brain injury is also referred to as a concussion, so that's perhaps the colloquial term for those who maybe don't know. Uh, ischemic stroke is also a form of brain injury, but we refer this is a non-traumatic uh, brain injury as it's not associated with trauma. But some of the same effects can occur with ischemic stroke as with a concussion where it impacts oxygen flow within the brain, essentially. There's over 345,000 military service members with TBI, and it's estimated that up to 20% of all service members who deploy will experience a TBI in their career. UFC fighters experience TBI in about one third of all fights, uh, and recurrent TBI can increase the risk of something you may have, people may have heard of called chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, uh, which was in the movie Concussion with Will Smith, if anyone ever saw that movie. I actually did not see it, but that was what that movie was about, him discovering CTE. Some of the same mechanisms that cause CTE are also associated with Alzheimer's and dementia, which is um, associated with a buildup of tau proteins within the brain. It's really not clear why some people with recurrent TBI get chronic traumatic encephalopathy or CTE, and some don't. But we do know contact sports are a risk. Um, one analysis showed professional hockey players face a 20% increase in the risk of the disease every year they play the sport. The CDC created guidelines around treatment of TBI, um, but currently there is no approved pharmacotherapy or really any other treatment at all besides just telling people to rest for two to three days, you know, avoid physical activity and like intense mental stimulation, which is not possible for everyone, of course, number one. And number two, it's not 
proven that that's really a long-term effective therapy for someone who has multiple TBIs. It's really unclear what the treat, best treatment is. So I'll post an article in the comments about professional athletes from different sports that have been uniting to attend psilocybin and ayahuasca retreats around the world. And some cases are even investing in psychedelic startups. Um, but you know, athletes have long-term to painkillers like military veterans and struggle with chronic pain and depression after retirement from their sport. So psychedelics seem to many of retired athletes and current athletes to present a very promising new alternative therapy. We know a uh, football quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, for one, is a very outspoken advocate for ayahuasca. He spoke at the MAPS conference in Denver last month. Um, he's talked about it in Joe Rogan podcast. He's gone on there a lot. So I think athletes as well as veterans are helping this to become more mainstream. And it certainly seems like psychedelics can produce anti-inflammatory effects within the whole body systematically without the negative side effects of drugs like uh, NSAIDs or opioids. But uh, I'm going to turn it over to Chris for more info on how psychedelics are helping for pain and inflammation. So I'm going to discuss how psilocybin might aid in treating chronic pain. So the development of chronic pain is a complex mechanism uh, that's still not fully understood. The mind-altering qualities of psychedelics have been attributed through the serotonin 2A receptor agonism to reset areas of functional connectivity in the brain that play prominent roles in many central neuropathic states. Psychedelic substances have a generally favorable safety profile, especially when compared with opioid analgesics. Clinical evidence to date for their use is in treating chronic pain is limited. However, several studies and reports over the past 50 years have shown potential analgesic benefit in cancer pain, phantom limb pain, and cluster headaches. Given the current state of the opioid epidemic and limited efficacy of non-opioid analgesics, it is time to consider further research on psychedelics as analgesics in order to improve the lives of patients with chronic pain conditions. What about the treatment, Chris, of phantom limb pain? I've heard that's uh, another thing psychedelic therapy could be beneficial for. Let me first, I'll talk about what phantom limb pain is. So about nine out of 10 patients who undergo an amputation will experience phantom limb sensation or pain. And it's basically, you know, that say they get uh, an amputation of their leg below the knee, um, they will still feel as if they have a whole leg and foot and will sometimes get pain signals from those areas, even though they are not actually associated with the patient anymore. So they call it phantom limb pain. And in two thirds of the patients, the sensation is extremely painful and it's referred to um, as phantom limb pain. Several theories about phantom limb pain's causes exist, including complex signals from the brain and spinal cord, which are disrupted and reorganized in such a way that pain is experienced. Several medications prescribed for uh, phantom limb pain or PLP um, are antidepressants and opioids, and they're only effective in a small group of patients. A potential role for psychedelic treatment has been suggested in the literature, although evidence is limited. In a study by Fanchalachi, sorry if I didn't pronounce that correctly, he 
looked at patients receiving uh, LSD and seven patients uh, with PLP received 25 micrograms uh, of LSD for one week, followed by a daily dose of 50 micrograms for two weeks. In five patients, the pain and the use of analgesics was reduced. Um, in two out of five patients, the reduction in pain was so striking that the use of analgesics was no longer needed. A Japanese study by Kiromaru included eight patients with PLP or phantom limb sensation and found a significant and sustained reduction in phantom limb pain, <clears throat> phantom limb pain in seven out of eight patients and pain relief in five of the six patients. I'd also like to talk a little bit about uh, cluster headaches and migraine. Uh, the prevalence of cluster headaches is estimated at 0.1% of the world population. It is considered one of the most painful medical conditions. Uh, the term suicide headache reflects the intense pain that's experienced during attacks. The attack usually consists of severe one-sided pain around the eye, which can occur multiple times daily and usually at predictable times. A cluster is the period in which attacks occur regularly ranging from weeks to years, also occurring at predictable times. During remission periods, there is a prolonged attack-free interval. The interest in psychedelics as a potential treatment for cluster headaches, or CH, as I'll refer to it, was sparked in 2001 when a CH patient created an online forum uh, called clusterbuster.org and shared his discovery that the use of LSD led to complete remission of his cluster headaches. Subsequently, a small study based on 53 similar self-medicating CH patients was published. People self-medicating with psilocybin reported that it could lead to acute abortion of their attacks. Additionally, self-medicating with either LSD or psilocybin could lead to a termination of cluster periods and an extension of the remission periods. This was the first time a substance was reported to terminate cluster headaches. Additionally, they reported that a single dose of LSD could be sufficient to induce a remission, unlike other ergot-based medication that must be taken daily. Finally, subhallucinogenic doses were reported to be effective, suggesting that psychoactive experiences were not necessary to treat cluster headaches. And then in 2015, Schindler conducted a larger survey with 496 participants from clusterbuster.org and other headache forums or clinics. They considered both conventional and unconventional treatment options and included a variety of demographics. They found that psilocybin was often tried as an abortive treatment in one-third of the participants, <clears throat> with two-thirds of these participants finding it at least moderately effective, and one-third finding it completely effective. As a prophylactic treatment, psilocybin and LSD provided at least moderate protection from attacks in 70% of participants. In 40%, complete remission was reported, higher than in any other conventional treatment. Participants described relatively infrequent use of psychedelics compared to other prophylactic treatment options. A single dose of psilocybin or LSD was able to prevent attacks, shorten or abort cluster headaches, or induce remission, although the number is small 
and includes uncontrolled variables. Subhallucinogenic doses were used by several participants, again suggesting that psychoactive effects are not necessarily necessary for a therapeutic effect. I'd also like to talk a little bit about fibromyalgia. Uh, fibromyalgia is, a, I'm going to refer to it as FM. It's a difficult to treat chronic pain condition for which there is strong interest in alternative treatments. There is a growing interest in the potential of psychedelic substances uh, in conjunction with psychotherapy to treat chronic pain. So via a cross-sectional anonymous online survey, researchers aim to characterize knowledge, perceptions, and past use of serotonergic or classic um, and non-serotonergic psychedelics among a population of individuals with FM and to investigate interest in psychedelic-based FM treatments. Among a North American population of 354 participants with FM, past use, past use of a psychedelic with lysergic acid, diethylamide, or LSD, and psilocybin mushrooms being most commonly used. Perceptions of benefit from psychedelic use were generally neutral at around 60% or positive which was around 37%, uh, with less than 3% reporting negative impacts on the overall health uh, or pain symptoms. Among 12 participants who used psychedelics with intentions of treating chronic pain, 11 reported improved symptoms. Regardless of past use, the majority of participants believed that reported, I'm sorry, they believed that psychedelics have the potential for chronic pain treatment and would be willing to participate in a psychedelic-based clinical trial for their pain. These findings support the need for additional studies to understand the potential and effectiveness of psychedelic substances in managing fibromyalgia symptoms. Uh, Colby, do you want to talk a little bit about um, stroke and Alzheimer's disease? Yeah, just I have... Uh, psychedelics are being researched for recovery from stroke and Alzheimer's, um, which does fit along with the TBI discussion we had earlier. Some of the same mechanisms of injury that cause um, chronic traumatic encephalopathy are also similar, as I mentioned, is what causes Alzheimer's. So there's been a little bit of research on psilocybin for Alzheimer's. I do think we will share some content on that at a later date. Um, and I liked your comment, Chris, about the cluster headaches, going back to that, with you don't necessarily need the psychedelic effect of the psychedelic um, to have benefit from treatment, that these are non-hallucinogenic doses they're using. Right. Yeah. So, you know, people that don't want to have a, a psychedelic experience, uh, it doesn't seem like they have to. Um, one thing that comes to mind is... Um, there's a molecule that's been uh, studied for you know, treating uh, cluster headaches and migraines um, that's similar in structure to LSD. Um, it's called 2-bromo-LSD. And there's basically a big bromine atom um, at the end of the molecule so that it doesn't completely fit into the uh, serotonin 2A receptor like LSD would. Um, but it does partially bind to the receptor um, and it was shown to uh, improve 
uh, patients' symptoms of uh, cluster headaches by about 60%. Um, and, you know, it didn't carry the risk of uh, causing a psychedelic trip. Yeah, and I brought that up because referring to last week, I was discussed with George about, George Sehorn, about the, is it necessary to have a hallucinogenic effect to obtain benefit from these drugs? And it really depends on what you're treating. We talked about the indication specifics. So, you know, the mental health aspect in one area, maybe it is essential, but again, for these other conditions we're treating, it might not be essential to have that hallucinogenic trip to obtain benefit. There could be other mechanisms of action at play with the impact on serotonin receptors and on Sigma one and other receptors in the body. Um, and maybe some other components of the mushroom or ayahuasca itself, which are not the psychedelic components, which are having benefits, the harmine and like the ayahuasca or chitin and the mushrooms or beta glucans, you know, a lot we don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I also want to close with revisiting Jim Harris, who we talked about uh, in the beginning of the podcast. So one potential caution of using psilocybin or psychedelics in patients with spinal cord injuries is that they can cause muscle spasticity, which for some people that use them has been reported to be really painful. Uh, many patients, though, say they put up with the spasms to obtain the benefits of using psychedelic drugs, you know, both the potential enhancement of muscle function, as well as the benefits in mental health symptoms that they get from using psychedelics. But just want to put that as a word of caution. And also, again, remind people listening that psilocybin and other psychedelics have been known to have increases in heart rate and blood pressure that can occur transiently during a therapy session or during the use of these drugs. So it is something we want to make sure that the risks are being balanced against the benefits of these agents. I think there is a tendency with a new therapy to say it's the greatest thing ever, you know, especially with, with these agents, there's so many enthusiasts out there um, that are really all aboard, but there's always caution. There's always a side effect of any medication, which is what these are. So want to make sure the content provided is balanced and that is a good point to bring up our legal disclaimer. Again, this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Um, we do not carry, again, these substances are legal, and we don't assume the risk of anyone who would use these substances and face legal consequences for their use. We are not legally responsible for that, but want to do ensure safe use and make sure that the latest efficacy and research information is getting out there. I believe that's all we have for tonight. We're hoping to line up a guest interview for the future again on psilocybin for ADHD. Uh, if I can get that, if we can get that to come through and otherwise microdosing or drug interactions will be future topics to discuss. If you have any other suggestions of topics we should discuss, leave a comment, feel free to subscribe and share with a friend and thanks everybody. Thank you.